In case you didn't know, it would be entirely appropriate to wish each other a happy new year today. That's because today is the first Sunday of Advent. This season is actually the beginning of the church calendar, which many of you may know, but maybe if you were not raised in a liturgical tradition, that might be weird for you. Uh, Our church calendar is what we form our yearly patterns of worship and celebration around. We begin with this season of Advent. We go into Christmas, to Epiphany, to Lent, to Easter, and then Pentecost, followed by months of months on end of what we call ordinary time, which you can just think of it as baseball season, essentially. It's about that long in that section. That's at least how I remember when ordinary time is. Um, but we begin that journey here today in Advent. So Happy New Year. Sorry you don't get Ryan Seacrest. You're going to have to settle for uh, me and Davis instead for our New Year's festivities, but I think we're uh, an all right crew. Now, one might look at this understanding of time in this type of calendaring and think that us church folk are just being difficult by starting exactly a month before the typical New Year. And by no means do I think this calendar is essential to a faithful practice of the Christian faith. However, I do think that the interruptive nature Uh, that this calendar offers to our typical flow of life might be something worth dwelling on today. For instance, I think that this time of Advent invites us to consider the ways in which our relationship with time in general can form us, inform our priorities in both healthy and unhealthy ways. Advent means the coming. Advent is about waiting with great expectation, and it's characterized through a time of waiting and anticipation of the coming of Christ. Advent invites us to be formed by priorities that frankly conflict with our usual ones at this time of year. In a time where the holiday rush is taking over our lives and telling us to go, 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 to work, 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 get done, Advent offers us a message of, again, expectant waiting of sitting in a time of waiting, expecting God to be at work. In a time where we bust our tails to look as well put together as possible for our visitors to our home or perhaps to our social media followers, Advent tells a story of a God who enters into the world through an unimpressive family and who enters into the world through this family in a way that would actually lead to them probably being ostracized by society. In a time where we're quick to jump to the holly jolly holidays, the easy parts of life, the joy that Christmas brings us, Advent also makes room for those of us who feel like we're in the darkness, just waiting to finally see see a light break in from on high. Simply put, Advent invites us to recognize that God is with us in our times of waiting. And therefore, even our waiting can be an opportunity for holy things to occur. Advent invites us to an active waiting, not a passive waiting, but an active waiting where we find ways to prepare for what's to come, where we open our lives up to the fulfillment of God's promises for our lives, for our communities, and for this world. And you know, when I think of the scriptures that we typically read during Advent, I tend to think of the prophecies of the coming Messiah that we might read in Isaiah, or I might think of the texts that we find in the Gospels that speak of both the incarnation of Christ and the second coming of Christ. 
But I don't typically think about Paul's letters when I think of Advent scriptures. But I found it interesting this week uh, that one of the lectionary texts, the texts that we tend to have around this time, uh, they, t- they always, or they typically offer also a letter from Paul or another New Testament selection. Uh, and in the lectionary this week for the first Sunday of Advent is this seemingly random selection from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, 9 through 13 that we're about to read. Let me set the scene for y'all a little bit before we read this scripture. This letter is likely the earliest one that we have in the Bible from the Apostle Paul. And it's written to the church in Thessalonica, Thessalonica, I'm going to say Thessalonica, I'm not really sure which way to say it. But Paul preached the gospel in this city and converted a group of Jews and Greeks who together formed the first church uh, of the Thessalonians. However, as the powers that be, as Caesar caught word of this group speaking of a new king named Jesus, they were hit with a heavy persecution that actually resulted in Paul and his friend Silas having to flee from Thessalonica, much to his dismay due to the great love that they had for the people of that church. Later on, Paul receives a report that even in the face of those hard times, the Thessalonians have not wavered in their faith. They've actually grown stronger in their faith. It's in response to this encouraging report that Paul writes his letter to the Thessalonians and that we read from today in chapter 3, 9 through 13. You'll find the scripture on the screen behind me, and I'll read it with y'all. It reads like this. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy that we feel before our God because of you? Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you face to face and restore whatever is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, just as we abound in love for you. And may he so strengthen your hearts in holiness that you may be blameless before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, as I said before, we're used to hearing the Old Testament prophets and the stories of the Gospels during Advent, but Paul's letters are uniquely relevant to us because they were written to guide churches who were, refo- who were formed in response to the good news told by the Gospel story. Yes, this church of the Thessalonians is fairly different than ours, and they face much different circumstances, but they're nonetheless a people who have gathered as a response to the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, just as we are. They're the church, as are we. So we have something to learn from this. I want to highlight a few themes, three themes to be specific, that this scripture reveals about Paul and the Thessalonians that I think we can glean a few things from ourselves here in the modern day church, right here in Bluff Park. Again, three themes, the first of which is vital, are vital relationships. Vital relationships. I emphasize vital here, because for the Thessalonians, the act of proclaiming Christ as king instead of Caesar came at considerable social cost that likely would have made the gathered community of disciples their new home, the people that they clung to. 
Relationships mattered more than ever for this church as they clung to each other and clung to the love that they shared for one another and for God. Paul's own passion for these relationships is also evident in the way that he writes to them in the scripture that we've just read and throughout this letter. The language is endearing, it is loving. He uses these endearing words of love while speaking of his eagerness to be reunited with these people as soon as he possibly can. The sense of companionship expressed in this letter is profound. And indeed, that's one of the beautiful things about the Christian faith that I think we sometimes forget. I know I forget it oftentimes. Is that deep companionship, deep friendship, it is an essential to the life of faith. Yes, discipleship is costly and can change so much about our lives, but discipleship also comes with the reminder, the promise, that we were never meant to be alone. Meaningful, committed relationships with others on a shared journey of following Christ is intrinsic to the practice of our faith. Relationships matter greatly. And you know, we live in a time where there is so much pulling us apart, pulling our relationships apart. And yes, part of that problem is polarization, which might be the first thing that comes to your mind, and yes and amen, that's a problem that we've got to think through. But there's also more to it, more subtle ways that we see ourselves being pulled apart, especially in our churches. It could be our busyness. It could be our normalization of speeding through human interactions to go where we'd prefer to be or perhaps where we'd be more comfortable being. It's our inability to pull away from our phones or our laptops long enough to look someone in the eyes so that we might see the image of God in them so that we might be truly present with them. And furthermore, we all know that individualism is so intrinsic to our cultural way of life that sometimes it seeps deep into our faith. You know, a personal relationship with Christ is vital. I absolutely believe that. It's vital. But I think sometimes we talk about a personal, personal relationship with Christ as if it negates our need for each other. In doing so, we forget that Christ himself gave most of those years of his ministry to close relationship with a group of disciples and then told them that their love for one another was how their faith would be proclaimed, how their faith would be spread, and how people would know who it is they follow. It was their love for one another. It was their community that would be their witness. There is so much in this world that's subliminally convincing us, even if it's not outright, that relationships are no longer vital. The Thessalonians inspire us to reject that and to let the church be the peculiar place in this day and age where anyone can walk through the doors and find not a perfect people, but a people who give hope that such relationships can still exist in an increasingly lonely world. Our second theme, so the first theme was vital relationships, and our second theme is relevant, or excuse me, is related to that. Our second theme is holy love. 
You know, I'll, I'll start by saying that one of the bigger mistakes that we can make is treating holiness as something that is separate from love. Treating holiness as the yes but of love, you know. Yes, we are to love, but to be holy. Here's the thing, y'all. Holiness cannot exist without love. It can't. Holiness and love go hand in hand because to live a holy life is to, li- uh, is to live as a living and breathing expression of the love, life, and reality of God who is love. Holy love, this abundant love that reflects the life and wholeness of Christ. Holy love is formed through holy friendships. Not holier-than-thou friendships. It's a very different thing. But friendships where holiness manifests itself through our ability to love one another meaningfully, to affirm the image of God within each other, and to point each other towards God and perhaps what God wills for our life. Greg Jones is a theologian who's now the president of Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee, and he describes holy friends in this way. Holy friends challenge the sins we have come to love, affirm the gifts we are afraid to claim, and help us dream dreams we otherwise would not dream. Who can be those friends for you? Who can be those friends who are holy and point you toward that vision? Who do you trust to be real with you to the point where they can challenge you, not attack you, affirm you, not overlook you, and desire to broaden your vision and invite you into a deeper way of living instead of keeping you chained down to your own expectations. I believe with all my heart, y'all, that this place can be a place where such friendships are cultivated. We have opportunity, an opportunity to do that. Holy friendships, holy love are what we see in the Thessalonians and I think are vital for us being a people who expect Christ to work in this space, as Advent calls us to do. Third, the last attribute that I'll point out is really the one that I want to hone in on for us today. Faith in a living God. I emphasize a living God. As Paul speaks of his joy for the community, he speaks with an utter confidence that God is a present, active reality in his relationship with the Thessalonians. God is at work in that relationship. I'll quote some of what he says. How can we thank God enough for all the joy we feel before our God for you? Now may God the Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct his way to you. God's at work in these relationships, and Paul acknowledges that. This isn't religious rhetoric. This is an earnest belief belief in God's presence and action in human relationships. You know, I'm oftentimes guilty of treating God like I would treat perhaps a monument, you know, like the Lincoln Memorial or perhaps a statue of Bear Bryant outside of Bryant-Denny Stadium or whatever it may be. Monuments speak to a person's memory that somehow shapes our traditions. It may even shape the way that we strive to live, but they're nonetheless a memory, you know? They don't speak necessarily of someone who is alive. And sometimes I treat God like that, as a memory, 
I talk about the stories of God's work and the people of Israel and Jesus' work as he walked here on earth and forget that Jesus is alive. And that is the power of our faith. That Jesus, the work that God has done continues. And for me, that's one of the most challenging things about faith, just to be real with y'all, is to both love the story of God's work in the world while also living into a belief that this story is not done that we're a part of the story. To live into the words of the old hymn that I love so much, life is worth the living just because he lives. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. And I think Paul's relationship with the Thessalonians shows us that one of the best ways to experience the living God is by building relationships but not just building relationships, by actively inviting God's presence into those relationships. I know I've seen that many times in my life, and I know you have too. And a central way of doing that, of inviting God into our relationships, is through prayer with one another. Communal prayer. You know, I'll be real with y'all, um, at least for me, I'm just a socially anxious person in general, so maybe it's just me. But oftentimes, prayers with others can feel like an awkward thing. We can be honest about that. Sometimes it can feel like the elephant in the room, right? Y'all know the feeling of sitting down to dinner with folks and wondering if anyone's expecting a blessing before you can start eating, so you kind of just wait a minute, look around to see if someone else will initiate either praying or eating first. And we all have those quick blessings to break that tension too. My favorite of which is rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub. Like, we all have those quick, done blessings we can do to cut the tension and move on, right? Now, that's a lighthearted example, meal blessings. But it speaks, I think, to this overall discomfort that we tend to feel with prayer. We often don't think about it and when we do think about prayer, we hesitate, th- uh, we hesitate to step into it with others because we might think it's too unusual, perhaps dramatic, or just awkward to bring up. I don't want to be that guy. But kind of like Advent, prayer can be a bit disruptive to what we're used to. And that's a beautiful thing. Communal prayer prayer together with others can be an intentional time of talking about our lives together. Communal prayer can be where we share both where we have seen God show up and where we desperately want to see God show up some more. Communal prayer could be a time to speak to Christ together with these concerns about those things and to speak, as if, uh, to speak with him as if he was trustworthy and true when he said that he would indeed be with us wherever two or more are gathered in his name. In doing so, Christ becomes more real to us. And coming together and holding to that promise and praying together, Christ becomes more real in our relationships and thus more real in our lives. We become more attuned to what he's drawing us toward as a people, as a community, whether it be as a family, as a church, as a small group, as well as individuals. And in doing so, we form a more profound sense of holy friendship that I was talking about. Rowan Williams is an is a Anglican priest, and he puts it this way. 
Growing in prayer is growing in Christian humanity. Prayer is a tool which brings us life. And if we want life in our communities, if we want life in our relationships, in our small groups, in our church, prayer is where we got to go together to find that life. I know many of y'all do that well, but I need that challenge for myself. And I'm sure it perhaps is a welcome challenge for everyone in this room in some way. And I've been thinking a lot about how this might be relevant to our community here at Bluff Park United Methodist Church. Because y'all, I believe with all my heart that there's something special going on in this place. I really do love this place and think that great things are happening and will continue to happen here. You know, the end of our purpose statement, which is on our website, says this. We seek to be a congregation that is rooted in faith in Christ. Rooted in faith and growing in grace to those around us. And after seven months here, y'all, I'm convinced that we are uniquely set up to reach people who are going unreached, to create a home for those who have not yet, find, find, who have not yet found a home. As a people who are both rooted in a deep tradition, in a deep story, while also intent on innovation, I believe that God continues to cultivate something special in this place. This service is a testament to that, to the work that y'all put in to creating this space. And look where y'all are now. I believe that God is cultivating something special here. Not for the sake of being an impressive church or growing our bottom line, but for the sake of living into God's vision for our church and what we have to contribute to the community of Birmingham, Alabama. And being faithful to his call to love others with all that we are as we love him. What does that look like for us going forward? I'm not entirely sure. I really don't know. But I think it begins with the first half of our purpose statement that I pointed out. Rooted in faith. I think it begins with tending to the soil that we are currently rooted in. So I think a challenge of Advent that we can begin this season with to till that soil is to challenge all of us to be a people of prayer. Yes, individual prayer, but also by committing to take one simple step toward a habit of communal prayer. That can look like many different things. Perhaps it's you and your spouse committing to a prayer routine if you have not already, or perhaps you need to get back on the horse with it. Perhaps it's finding two or three other church members in this space who are willing to commit to meeting together to pray for one another and for our church and for our community just once or twice a month, something accessible and doable. Perhaps it's signing up for a common table, if you haven't already, and being a part of community that seeks God's presence together around the table and in prayer and in sharing life together. Whatever it is, I invite us to consider what the next step is to making prayer less of a formality and more of a gift worth receiving that we believe can do great things in this community. I know it already has, but how can we take a next step to go deeper with that? I believe with all my heart that praying together is a part of that. And I believe that that's a, a helpful message for us as we begin this Advent journey. As we begin this journey of waiting, of expecting, of seeking out God's presence and the way in which he would have us go to come more alive and who he has called us to be. I think that begins by praying together. Allowing God to have space in the relationships we form with each other and throughout this body.
so that he might work in miraculous ways that we could never do on our own. It sounds like a task worth taking on, and that's a challenge for myself, I know. I'm pretty bad at praying, I'll confess to you. But it's one, I think, worth taking on together. Hey, friends, I just wanted to take a moment and say thank you for tuning into our message this week in The Gathering. We hope you found it meaningful and life-giving. As always, you're invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., either in person here in the chapel or online. If you want to know more about who we are at Bluff Park United Methodist Church, you're invited to check out our website. There you'll find out who we are, what we have going on, and how you can be a part of it. As always, friends, if there's anything that we can do for you, you're invited to reach out to us. We are here to help you and support you in any way that we can. We hope that you're having a great week, and we look forward to seeing you soon.